Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Insights in Focus podcast. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Chief Executive of Chatham House, the think tank. Today, we're discussing how demographic trends, as well as changes to the UK's working population, are affecting the government's finances and the policy options on hand. The numbers do not make easy reading for those in charge of the public purse. The latest census revealed that almost a quarter of the UK's population is now aged 60 or older. Recent research claims NHS spending will need to increase yearly by 3% to meet demand. And there's also a growing need for adult social care and trillions in unfunded state pension liabilities. And of course, all this is converging at a time when economic conditions are particularly challenging and the government is trying to rein back spending. To discuss how the government can best manage these competing priorities, we're joined by David Miles, Professor at Imperial College and member of the Budget Responsibility Committee at the Office for Budget Responsibility. Hello, David. Hello. We have also Carl Emerson, Deputy Director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Welcome, Carl. Hello. And we have finally Martin Wheatcroft, ICAEW Advisor and Fellow. Hi. Good morning. Very good to have you all here today. Before we plunge into the policy questions, let's start with the key changes and trends in UK demographics that listeners should be aware of. Martin, perhaps we can start with you. And you've been doing a lot of thinking about the effect of the ageing population, haven't you? Yes. I mean, more people are living longer. Over the next 20 years, we're expecting about 25% more pensioners. Uh, That's going to increase from 12 million to 15 million people. At the same time, the working age population is only going to go up by about 5% or potentially 7% with higher migration, which I know other people will want to talk about. And then um, the number of children actually is going to fall, number under 18 is going to fall by 11% over the next 20 years. So we've got quite a different change in the profile of the demographic. We've also got slower population growth. Um, Over the last 20 years, the population's increased by about 20%. But over the next 50 years, it's going to go up sort of closer to 5 to 10%. So these are really quite big shifts. David, I wonder if you could take us into the implications. And I should say that these are not in themselves bad things, are they? People are living longer, uh, many of them living healthy, longer lives. Slower population growth, something that that, uh, many governments have, have wanted. But they do have real effects on the public finances, don't they? do because they have an impact on the age structure of the population, what proportion of the population is working, what proportion of the population are in those parts of their life when they make the greatest uh, demands upon the health system and on the payment of state pensions. So the net effect of all those things is to almost certainly increase pressure on the public finances in a way that will get worse almost certainly year on year. As you say, though, the underlying drivers of what's changing the demographics are in themselves not negative things. Increasing life expectancy, many of the extra years that people will live are are, are good years in decent health, not all of them, is on balance a good thing. And a lower rate of growth of the population in a densely populated country like the UK that's trying to hit net zero targets is also not in itself a bad thing, but it, it generates certainly major fiscal problems. And what about immigration, which Martin mentioned? That's an offset to what would otherwise be an even sharper increase in the proportion of people over 65 relative to the rest of the population. At least it is in the short term. Immigrants, when they arrive in the UK, on average, are of lower age than the domestic population. 
and they can be expected to, on average, work for the next, you know, 20, 30 years or more. That's of some fiscal help in the short term, but of course, those people grow old themselves. So unless you have immigration at quite high levels, possibly even accelerating levels, it's not going to stop the ageing of the population in the UK. Carl, there was a lot of emphasis in the 2023 budget on getting people back into the labour market after coronavirus and after many seem to have just left the workforce. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. I mean, if the challenge we have is that people are living longer at older ages, as David says, and some of those years are in um, good health, that's a good news story. But if you think about the effects on the public finances, if you think about the effects on people's own private finances, actually a neat solution to the challenge of how do you deal with the fact that you're going to have more years of life at older ages? Well, retiring a bit later looks like quite a smart solution. It could be encouraged by a higher state pension age. It can be encouraged by other policy levers. Um, So the government in particular has been looking at um, incapacity benefits and how they work, other ways of supporting older individuals either to get back into the labour market or perhaps more likely to stay in the labour market for a bit longer. And in terms of their own private finances, um, if you're saving privately for retirement, if you spend more years in working life, that's more years paying into a pension, perhaps don't have quite so many years drawing out, that's fewer years in which that pension's got to finance. So it can be a neat solution to the challenge of having an adequate retirement income privately as well as a neat solution of how to keep up tax revenues and how to limit some of the demands on the state. Not an uncontroversial one, as we could see from the streets of France at the moment or the protests there about pension age, but we're, we're talking mainly about the UK. Martin, just take us perhaps a bit more into the pressures that these trends we've just been describing are exerting on the public on public spending and public finances. As David said, more pensioners equals more spending on pensions, health and social care. And we've had that added to by government policies such as the triple lock, social care reform, if it happens, uh, welfare expansion such as childcare in, in March's budget. That all adds to the pressure on the public finances. So, so there tends to be not only a demographic pressure, but also a political pressure to expand uh, the social protection that the state uh, provides. And we don't have any more the ability to raid the defence budget that we had. That's that's contributed a lot of, of money towards uh, the health service in particular over the last uh, 50 years or so. Let's explain this a little bit. That's uh, basically by squeezing the defence budget, governments have found more and more money to go into health, but they can't with war in Ukraine do that anymore. Correct. We've now hit the 2% uh, NATO minimum and defence spending looks like it's going to be going up over the next uh, 10 to 20 years, not down. And that's uh, by being able to raid the defence budget in that way, governments have been able to avoid putting up taxes in the way that we've seen in, in some other countries. Target NATO minimum, I think I should say, for those in search of wiggle room. But as you absolutely rightly say, the UK is not going to be looking there for extra money right at the moment. Let's turn to the politics a bit, which we cannot ignore. These things are immensely controversial. And Martin, again, could you take us just into where where you think public expectations have got to about the the level of public services? Well, I hesitate to use the phrase cake and eat it, but I I will. There is a a tendency to believe that we can have European-style levels of public spending, public services, a comprehensive health service, etc., without European-style levels of taxation. And that dichotomy over the, the last few decades is, is now coming 
to a more of a severe point, particularly exacerbated by low economic growth. David, do you think people are right to feel betrayed, as I think some do, that they had a contract with the state for all kinds of things like pensions, healthcare, education, and somehow that contract is being rewritten, not in their favour, and then the politicians say, but please vote for us again? Well, they may feel that, but I think if people do expect that the level of services they get will just keep getting better and they'll be protected from more and more economic shocks, whilst at the same time not seeing any increase in the burden of tax, then I'm afraid there's a pretty uh, an unrealistic set of expectations. I guess you could see why they may be there. The government did a great deal to protect people from some of the worst damage of the two big shocks we've had in recent years. That is COVID followed shortly after by uh, the huge increase in energy prices, which came on the back of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the government spent an enormous amount of money really in, in cushioning households in the UK from at least some of the enormous damage those two shocks brought. And I think people need to be realistic, actually, about the scope that the state has to protect against things like that, which were unpredictable shocks, and also against more predictable things such as demographic change, whilst doing that without increasing taxes. Taxes are going to go up in the UK. They're they're scheduled to go up fairly significantly, actually, as a proportion of GDP. But to preserve the level of support that the state has been able to give households, into the distant future, that tax take may need to go even higher. It's a very important point you've made that people's expectations may have changed, risen in a way, during coronavirus and indeed the energy protections that government brought in, though those were not uh, immediate and not uh, to be taken for granted, you could say extracted from the government. Carl, what is your view of this? And the IFS has done really a lot of work in a way on on expectations of of the health service, of of social care and so on. Well, I think if... um... One of the lessons from the last few years is that when these bad, nasty shocks come along, for very good reasons, uh, the government steps in and provides a lot of support to public services, to businesses and directly to households to help them through those shocks. And what happens in those periods of time is government debt increases pretty substantially as a share of national income and for good reasons. I think the challenge that means is that, you know, Unfortunately, at some point, another adverse shock will come along and it will be right for the government to step in and right for the government probably to increase debt again. What that means is we really need to be aiming to get debt down in the years when we're not anticipating those kind of bad shocks coming along, just in case they do. We can't have debt rising in both the good years and the bad years too. So it does mean that um, we need to be you know, ambitious, I think, in terms of creating what's known technically as fiscal space, so that when those bad events come along, and history teaches us, the OBR has shown that unfortunately, the next recession is usually at most a decade away. Uh, The shocks the UK has experienced, the financial crisis, the pandemic, and now the energy shock have been pretty big and pretty adverse shocks. Um, And we want to have the space for government to step in and help us in those periods, um, which I think means we need the government to repair the damage it does to its balance sheets in the other years. Martin, do you think there's a risk of short-termism because of politics? I think we we do suffer from short-termism, and and there's many reasons for that, the electoral cycle being one of them. But it it, it is very difficult. You've got a a fiscal strategy, in effect, that's been based on a pay-as-you-go system, and that really requires a steady state population with similar demographics. And we've we've not got that. Um, and it also relies on 
strong economic growth, which we haven't got either. And finally, it, it relies on the willingness of future generations to pay the taxes that are needed to pay the bills. And um, we've discovered politically that's quite difficult to put up taxes and make other adjustments um, that uh, that are needed. And so that makes it challenging for people to make long-term decisions that you would ideally like to see in terms of a long-term fiscal strategy to fix the roof while the sun is shining. And just spell out for us the difficulty in putting up taxes. Is it political opposition? People are going to vote you out or they're going to leave the country? They're very mobile. Well, I think the concern is about uh, your ability to get votes if you're going in to an election saying you're going to raise taxes, for example, is is not a comfortable place to be. Although, having said that, there's no surprise that the first budget after a general election tends to be a tax-raising budget because that's the best time to raise taxes. But we do have this ratchet effect where, where pressures on spending gradually increase over time. The politicians and the Chancellor and the Treasury try to hold the line and then every so often they need to relax the waistband and, and raise taxes. And, and so you get this ratchet effect uh, going on. David, Martin was referring to growth, and that has been stalling in the UK. Can you just describe for us how this has complicated these kind of choices? It certainly has. If you go back before the financial crisis 2008 and look at the few decades leading up to that, the growth of productivity, average output per hour worked in the UK was running at probably around about 2%, maybe a bit more than 2%. Since the financial crisis, now 15 years ago, it's barely been positive, probably nearer half a percent than the slightly more than 2% that preceded it. 15 years of that means that relative to the trajectory you might have hoped the UK was on, output or incomes per person in the UK is probably 25, maybe even 30% below that previous trend. That generates an enormous hole in the available resources there are in the UK. And it means that standards of living have stagnated uh, rather than increased as they had in most of the period since the Second World War. And when expectations of what the state can do don't diminish in line with those diminished resources, there is an enormous pressure uh, on the fiscal position. And that's where we are right now. Carl, we've heard a lot over the years, decades even, about the UK's uh, productivity problems and also about regional imbalances. How much of of these are a factor in the the lack of growth we're seeing? There's lots of reasons why uh, the UK economy's not grown as fast as it um, used to. Lots of reasons why the UK economy's not as productive as um, some other countries that we'd like to be as productive as. Um, And I think actually it points to the fact that if we want to solve those problems, there's not going to be one easy solution to that. There's a lot of complicated policies that interact. There's lots of policies that economists would point to and say, well, you should do this, this and this. But actually, politically, they're not that easy. So relaxing planning laws, uh, changing competition policy, thinking about your trade policy, your immigration policy getting your education policy right, in particular for the half of people that don't go on to higher education. All of those things are the kinds of things that economists would point to. Um, And indeed, colleagues at IFS have got lots of examples of how we can improve the functioning of our tax system. Um, But a lot of those things create losers. Um, They can be a difficult sell. And there's reasons why politicians have shied away from doing them in the past. So at this point, we've talked about the demographic, the economic and some of the political pressures on public spending all coming together at once. Let's now turn to this question. 
of what policymakers can and should do to manage all these competing objections. I want to start with this word tax. That has indeed made it into this podcast already. Martin, you were saying that higher taxation is inevitable and lasting austerity, in a sense, is likely. I don't think it's inevitable, but it's going to take some good luck, I think, to try and help. We are in a catch-22 fiscal position at the moment. The Chancellor can't find enough money to invest in the economy because economic growth isn't strong enough to be able to afford it. And so we we need to break out of that cycle somehow. And uh, a good run of the economy would provide that bit more room for manoeuvre that the current Chancellor doesn't have. The other thing is to say that this is a long game. And the good news is that we do have quite a long time if we want to make changes for them to have an effect. So small changes now over a period of 25 years or 50 years can make a big difference. And we've seen that in some other countries. For example, Australia, with their future fund, a sovereign wealth fund that they've set up, they've moved their federal staff onto a defined contribution pension arrangements, for example. And that's gradually helping their um, public finances and putting them into a better place. And there are opportunities to do small changes that which build up over time. And so it, the hope is not lost, I would say. We've got more dramatic changes. We've heard quite a bit from Labour uh, at the moment ahead in the polls uh, about property taxes, indeed wealth taxes. How live do you think that debate is? Well, I think uh, all tax policy is always live. Very nicely put. (laughs) (laughs) I I think, as Carl says, the challenge with tax uh, changes is that the losers do tend to squawk much more loudly than the winners. And um, there are opportunities to improve things like how wealth is taxed and how businesses are taxed, for example. But we do have a a challenge that quite often what tax policy tends to focus is on, on playing around with the small taxes. But two thirds of our taxes come from five taxes and there's a resistance there to tinker with them. Um, The fifth of those is corporation tax and that has been tinkered with with the big rises from April. But other taxes like income tax and national insurance, there tends to be a lot more political resistance because they do affect um, a much wider group of people. But they are the ones that produce the money. Carl, I'm not going to use the word inevitable again, but you were making a case that increases in the state pension age are often seen as um, a way to go about this. I think they're seen as a, a natural way forward when people are living longer at older ages, living healthier lives. It seems appropriate for not all of that extra life to be spent in retirement, not all of that extra life to be spent receiving um, a state pension. It's not inevitable. We could choose to have a lower state pension age. We could choose to have a more generous state pension. But these things come with a price tag. It's about getting those those trade-offs right. And I think that you know, the principle now of if it is the case that people are living longer at older ages, we should push up the state pension age is a, is a coherent one. But it does point as well, probably, to requiring tax rises alongside that. It's not going to fix all of the demographic challenges we face. And I think there, actually, we might want to look at where other countries get their extra tax revenue from. And Martin spoke earlier about how Western European countries, Scandinavian countries often have higher tax burdens in the UK. How do they do that? It's not by taxing the top 1% or the top 5% more. It's about taxing the top half more. It's about having, in particular, they often have higher rates of their equivalent of national insurance contributions on middle and just above middle earners. Now, that's not necessarily politically easier, easy, but it's where they get the extra revenue from. David, what do you make of this debate and the sheer amounts of money that Carl, for example, is just, just talking about? Is that, is that reflected in the British debate? Well, I think it's becoming better recognised that taxes have to and 
are likely to rise, certainly in the near term. I mean, if you go back just a few years before COVID, total amount of tax raised in the UK out of total incomes or GDP in the UK was about a third, it was about 33%. Projections are that on the current trajectories of government policy, four or five years down the road, that 33% number will be 38. So that's five percentage points of GDP and a GDP which is not growing very fast, more going to the state. And we're, we're already seeing this happening and it will continue over the near term. And if it didn't happen, the stock of government debt, which has been rising very dramatically in recent years, would continue going up without uh, end in sight. And that's not sustainable. How far you can push the tax take out of GDP without doing significant damage to people's incentives to save, to work, to invest is a deep and difficult question. The easy answer, of course, is, well, you just have to have a more effective and efficient tax system. That's easy to say. It's quite difficult to achieve. The best answer, of course, is can we get back to growth rates that were normal in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? And if that were to happen, then there's nothing inevitable about the tax takeout of people's incomes out of GDP rising. The question then is, what is the power of the state as opposed to entrepreneurial drive of individuals and companies? What is the power of the state itself to raise the rate of growth of the UK economy? As we're coming to the end of this, let's just take closing thoughts on that last point, which is a more optimistic point in a way. And it's obviously where politicians would like the debate to be about what they can do to increase growth. I can think every government for decades really has come in with plans for industrial improvement, whether or not they call that a policy for further education, for regional development. And just on that that point that David put so well, let's just take last thoughts on what a government is capable of doing to change these factors? Well, there's a huge amount the government can do. The question at the moment is that there's a lack of fiscal firepower, if you want to call it that, available to the Chancellor because he's right up against his self-imposed fiscal rules. So a lack of money, in other words. And as David said, uh, debt is now at two and a half trillion and heading up towards three trillion um, fairly shortly. So we've, we've got a challenge about how you control that rise in debt Invest and grow in the economy, you know, infrastructure, whether that's in skills and so on, in technology, and to do things. The other thing, just on public services themselves, we've got a quality problem in public services at the moment. They need investment. You need new technology to improve the quality of public services. And again, because of uh, the need to conserve resources at the moment, given the current fiscal situation, the investment that you need and ideally would go into public services isn't happening. And of course, that that's a catch-22 again, that uh, you're not being able to improve the quality of public services in the way you'd like. And in fact, many areas of public services are deteriorating at the moment. Carl, your last thoughts on this? Well, there's certainly lots of policies that um, we could do that would help contribute to more growth. And actually, if we are putting up taxes, yes, it's important that we reform those taxes. It'd be less damaging to put up well-designed taxes than to put up the ones that we currently have. But even if we weren't going to push up taxes, there's a strong case for tax reform to have a smarter tax system that can achieve the redistribution that we want to have without doing as much damage to 
um, the economy. So to take one specific example, calls for a new wealth tax. Well, I think my starting point would be to say, well, let's look at the taxes we currently have on effectively wealth. Let's look at capital gains tax. Let's look at stamp duty. And let's look at council tax. They really don't work as well as they should. Let's reform them regardless of whether we want to push up the taxes um, or whether we want to keep them roughly at a current level. Um, by doing so, we could have a fairer tax system and one that does less harm to our economy. David. There's one area where I'm optimistic that we could do better and one area where people make proposals and I'm very skeptical about them. The optimistic thing. I think we've managed to get resources allocated in not the best way in supporting people when they leave school. So those people that go to university, which is still uh, probably a bit less than 50% of the people coming out of schools, um, get quite a lot of resources from the state. But there's really very little, relatively anyway, that goes to those people who would benefit greatly from vocational training, apprenticeships, those kind of things, who get much less support from the state than people who go to university. So I say this as someone who works at a university. I think the allocation resources has gone a bit wrong there. Can I tell you one thing about an area where I'm kind of skeptical? Quite often people say, well, the, one of the problems with economic, the direction of uh, economic strategy in the UK from the government is we're far too centralized. It'd be much better if power was decentralized across the country. I'm kind of skeptical for two reasons. Firstly, it's quite a small country. I mean, there are many states in the US, it's probably 12 or 13 states, individual states in the US that are bigger geographically than the whole of the UK. But more than that, it just, when we have devolved power to the Welsh government, the Scottish government, it's not obvious in the period since that happened that that has improved relatively the economic performance of those areas. So I'm skeptical that that's the answer to the question. David, you're sketching out there a tantalising whole new subject that could be the subject of a whole different podcast. We can't go there today. This does sound with those closing thoughts, though, uh, like a great place to end things. So my thanks to David, Carl and Martin for sharing all your thoughts on what the years ahead may and should look like. You can learn more about the issues discussed today by visiting the Future of Tax and Public Spending Hub on the ICAEW website, and you'll find the link in the show notes for this episode. Regular host Philippa Lamb will be back next episode. In the meantime, please rate, review and share this episode, and remember to subscribe to ICAEW Insights wherever you get your podcasts. 